is Camilla, and you're listening to the Cat's Whisker, a time machine for all those who love rock and roll and want to know everything about it. People, stories, and the music that changed the world. In a few words, it doesn't matter whether you've lived through those years or, just like me, you've always wondered what it was like. I have loads of stories to tell and great music to play. So, let's roll! Hello everyone and welcome back to the Cat's Whisker. Since it's nearly Halloween, I thought maybe I should talk about something that scared a lot of people through the years. And when it comes to the 1900s, just a few things actually scared religion as much as rock and roll did. Religion and rock and roll. It's like a toxic relationship if you think about it. At first, everything seems to be going great. Religious communities are the context where rock and roll blossoms in many ways. Then, when it abandons religion to become something on its own, Religion resents it and hates it most hardenly. Then, when rock and roll becomes mainstream and everyone is kind of tired of being angry at it, that's when Christianity kind of things, well, if you can't fight them, join them. And decides that if many weird couples exist, Christian rock won't even be one of the weirdest ones. Today, just like a good therapist, I want to actually discover how two incompatible things came along and then separated. But let's start from the beginning of this very unconventional affair. So, first of all, if we were to put a rock and roll on a map, we would surely be starting off in the south of the United States, around the Bible Belt. In that area, there were many African-American communities that used to work in plantations and, when slavery was abolished in 1865, were still finding their place in society. Now, there are different reasons why many genres and eventually rock and roll developed there. And the main being that the music was so important for these communities. Music was a relief, a rare opportunity to be happy and forget about their sorrows. Back in the day, singing was one of the only ways available to slaves to make music, since they weren't allowed drums, horns or loud instruments, as the owners were afraid that they would be communicating between each other in secret. But they always managed to find a way to send a message, and oftentimes it happened through religious music, or better, spirituals. For example, It is said that the arrival of abolitionist and activist Harriet Tubman was often announced by the song Go Down Moses. And while they were working hard, work songs based on call and response literally set the rhythm of the workday. A leader sang a verse and then, at the same time, everybody would sing something in response or, for example, let's say the group was working on a rail track, all the workers would be hitting the track with the hammer all at the same time as a musical response. When slavery was abolished in the United States, African-American music took two separate paths, gospel and blues. Now, we all know what these two genres sound like. They both originated in the same communities, but essentially who was singing in the church developed gospel and who was singing outside and talking about secular suffering started blues. Pretty soon, the division between the two becomes enormous. Not only the themes were different, but the entire lifestyle linked to them. Blues was sinful. It was about living here and now, letting go and enjoying life on earth to try and escape all the sorrow enslavement left in heritage. 
as for gospel, soul, and all those genres linked to Christianity, well, let's say it wasn't really their cup of tea. But that doesn't mean that their songs and performances were less meaningful or good. Pentecostal faith stands out amongst all the different Christian streams, and it's probably the one where gospel and rock and roll were born. It promotes a very energetic preaching. Essentially, if you feel the faith, you have to literally feel God inside your body and express that feeling in any possible way. Actually, for many, the church environment was really the only option available to perform music. And African-American music at the time was very different from white music. It was exciting and new, and if you were very talented, you could actually make a career out of it. The interesting fact is that many successful musicians of the early days that managed to bring gospel to a broader audience are women. The pianist Arizona Drains, for example, introduced piano in the gospel genre that, before then, was mainly a cappella. She became famous during the 20s for incorporating the jumpy ragtime rhythm to church compositions. And since in the past the drums were prohibited, rhythm is often kept by clapping hands or stomping the feet. Spirituals and gospel soon become a very popular genre that travels all around the world. One of the first African-American women to be recorded was the great Mahalia Jackson, also considered one of the most influential vocalists of the last century. Although we can all agree that her voice is amazing and powerful, when she sang around the US for the first time, the audience was completely overwhelmed by her energetic delivery. So much so that when she brought her Sound of the South to Chicago, she was accused of blasphemy. Even if everybody recognized her immense potential, it was clear that they weren't ready for it yet. Just like in Back to the Future. She had to take lessons to be more appealing to white people and be more proper. And to hide her uncontrollable moves, she would always wear loose robes. She called herself a fish and bread singer for her constant work for God and went from singing in small churches to the Royal Albert Hall and selling 22 million records. She was one of the first African-Americans to be recorded and this is particularly significant in an era where mostly white performers had opportunities in recording studios. At that time, though, the church wasn't strictly against the new energetic type of music, as long as it was still featuring religious lyrics. That's how the godmother of rock and roll, Sister Rosetta Tharp, became famous for introducing religious songs to a new genre, very close to rhythm and blues, and played amazingly on her electric guitar. She brought religion on secular stages and became a star herself during the 40s. But as we know, it was during the 50s that the cracks begin to show. After the war, in the first years of peace, teenagers could finally be teenagers and wanted a radical change from tradition. They didn't want to praise a god, they wanted songs about them. Songs that talked about their lives, having fun, enjoying the moment, their first relationship. Not love for a higher being, but for a friend, a schoolmate. And many musicians that became rock and roll legends started out in churches, giving spirituals and gospel a whole new shape. Between the first, influenced by Mahalia Jackson and Rosetta Tharp, there was a band from the 50s called 
the Soul Stirrers. Their leader was Sam Cooke. So the thing is, people loved these guys, but most of all, they loved Sam Cooke. Oh, girls loved Sam Cooke. So yeah, turns out that many girls went to see the Soul Stirrers, a gospel group singing God's word, just to basically fangirl over Sam Cooke. I mean, can't blame them really. Before Elvis made music immoral, Sam Cooke, in fact, brought sex into church for the first time. He then was the first to actually take a very serious leap, decide whether to stay in his religious environment and continue his career, or go solo and jump onto the rhythm and blues train. As we know, he chose the second one. But it's worth mentioning that some of his hits were actually religious songs to which he changed the lyrics. So, the gospel song, Wonderful, became a love ballad dedicated to a girl. That was 1956, and at the end of that year, another amazing music miracle happened. The Million Dollar Quartet. Now, for those of you who don't know it, do you remember in the first episode when I mentioned the world-famous Sun Studio with Sam Phillips in Memphis? Well, if you don't remember it, go and check out the episode about the first rock and roll song. But anyway, in that studio on December the 4th, 1956, a proper miracle happened. Producer Sam Phillips could count on an interesting range of rock and roll stars on his bill. But he certainly didn't expect to have them all together in one place at the same time. So here's the story. Carl Perkins, that had just become super famous thanks to his hit, Blue Sweet Shoes, was in the studio to record some new songs. Amongst them probably even the later hit, Matchbox. He needed a pianist, so producer Sam Phillips fixes him up with a not yet famous guy that could play amazingly, Jerry. Jerry Lee Lewis. Another artist was around to hear the recordings the Sun Studio was working on that day, making sure everybody was walking the line, as he would say. <laughs> Horrible pun, but absolutely intended to introduce the third guest, Mr. Johnny Cash. Right, so you'd think, okay, that's a full house, nothing else can surprise me. Well, guess who shows up in the afternoon? Elvis. He was just in the neighborhood and thought he might pop in. When the four start a jam session in the studio, Jack Clement, the sound engineer, decides to tape the impromptu meeting. And it's thanks to producer Sam Phillips that called the press straight away that today we also have pictures to commemorate this event. So, besides being a miracle happened by chance, what does this have to do with religion? Well, while jamming, they were obviously trying to find songs that they all knew. And the choice was easy. Gospel. Four rock and roll stars together singing church songs. It sounds like science fiction, but it actually happened on this planet. For real. It's not really surprising though. I mean, all these people grew up in Christian communities and knew all these songs. Jerry Lee Lewis, who became very famous not long after the Million Dollar Quartet, was deeply torn between the strict religious background he was raised in and the sinful desire to make rock and roll. He actually tried to become a preacher and attended the Southwestern Bible Institute in Texas. But we can only imagine how that went. While singing hymns, he was constantly trying to make them more boogie-woogie. 
Until one day the priest slapped him and he was out of there. He got expelled and sold his soul to rock and roll. Having said that, it is also true that Jerry Lee Lewis, besides being a singular character, to say the least, always remained pretty caught up with religion even in the later years. This dualism became nearly unbearable when in 1957, during the recording of Great Balls of Fire, Lewis raises some doubts about recording such a sacrilegious song. Producer Sam Phillips was trying to convince him that he could save souls with his music, but Jerry Lee was very, very doubtful. How could the devil save souls? He asked Phillips. I've got the devil in me! Phillips, though, very patient guy, managed to calm him down. Jerry Lee Lewis once asked Elvis Presley, When you die, do you think you'd go to heaven or hell? Apparently the question scared a hillbilly out of him. His face turned red and then white again and he said, Jerry Lee, don't ever ask that to me again. Well, after all, Elvis was straight away an obvious target for all the religious associations. His dance moves were deeply sexual and I bet they've been part of the sexual awakening of many people at that time. But maybe even today, because why not? The crowd was absolutely obsessed with him at his concerts, but then many people were outraged. Both for his hips, but mostly for the well-crowded girls that knew no inhibition when he was on stage. He was literally threatened with jail time, and when he was on famous television shows like The Ed Sullivan Show, most times he was only filmed from his waist up to avoid showing his scandalous dance moves to the public. What I find really funny is that in those same years, actresses like Marilyn Monroe were actually the erotic dream of many boys and men that went to see her films because of her immense sexual energy. But when Elvis was driving a crowd of girls crazy, that was absolutely outrageous. Even the FBI intervened to say that his acts were like striptease just with clothes on. Mm. And even if he became the enemy of many Christians, Elvis discovered his passion, exactly like many others, with gospel in church. Elvis was definitely less religious than Jerry Lee, but it's safe to say that religion played a big part in his life. He was baptized three times. He discovered his love for singing, listening to gospel in church, and he literally died while reading a religious book. Nevertheless, Christians didn't really like him. Even his longtime friend and musician Jimmy Snow turned his back to rock and roll. He joined priesthood and became famous in 1956 with a speech he gave while he was filmed for a documentary on PBS about the evil of rock and roll. But let's hear what he said about it. To find out my reasons on rock and roll music and why I preach against it, and I believe with all of my heart that it is a contributing factor to our juvenile delinquency of today. I 100% believe it. Why I believe that is because I know how it feels when you sing it. I know what it does to you. And I, I know uh, the evil feeling that you feel when you sing it. I know the, the, the lost position that you get into in the beat. Well, uh, if you talk to the average teenager of today and you ask them what it is about rock and roll music that they like, and they'll, the first thing they'll say is the beat, the beat, the beat. It might make us smile today, but part of it is kind of true. Rock and roll is a music you feel deep in your bones. It runs through your blood and makes you want to move and forget about everything. What I find funny is the part where he says that it makes you evil and a criminal. 
To be fair, rock and roll was a great response to a society that was already changing. It became the scapegoat for something that at the time no one was really understanding. They were coming from a time of sacrifice and trying to rebuild society as it was, but everything was changing. And being a good Christian, waiting for sex until marriage, or essentially having someone preaching you about how you should lead your own life, wasn't selling anymore. This first generation of teenagers wanted to follow their own rules. And that's why, obviously, rock and roll was soon in big contrast with the church, or especially in the United States, it became very hard to accept, even for great rockers. Take Little Richard, for example, flamboyant and rebel, in 1957 decides to quit rock and roll to be ordained a minister. Although he'll come back in the 60s, his most interesting contribution to the genre was certainly made in the 50s. And some of his songs actually were recorded by many new musicians, amongst them on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean and certainly less religious, the Beatles. And, you know, if you ask me, I will tell you that the Beatles are the greatest thing that ever happened to music and to the world in general. And they are the reason why I've chosen Liverpool as the place where to live the rest of my life. And I know this might sound crazy for some people, maybe not all of you, but some, probably. And even back in the day, it was a very weird thing to say. So for instance, when John Lennon said in an interview to the Evening Standard in 1966 that he thought that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus Christ, well, the world was very peeved off. To be fair to John Lennon, I'll give you some context because I honestly think he was right. He just admitted that in the moment, the Beatles were more popular than religion between teenagers. Wasn't that true? Yes, it was. But again, society wasn't really ready to look at itself in the mirror and decide that things were changing and there was nothing wrong with it. It's interesting, in fact, seeing how two different societies reacted differently. When the article was published in the UK, nobody really said anything, but the American public was not having it. Mostly because it was very well advertised in a way that made the audience misinterpret Lennon's words. Many radios decided to ban the Beatles from airplay. Bonfires were organized where teenagers could burn Beatles records and memorabilia. And when I see the pictures of people burning the records, oh, I feel sick. But I love that a radio in Texas held a very big bonfire and that same night a lightning bolt decided to casually strike their transmission tower, sending them off the air. Instant karma's gonna get you, I guess. Now speaking about karma, Christianity soon isn't the only religion that has a close relationship with rock and roll. In 1947, right after World War II, something big happened in Asia. India became an independent country after centuries of British power. This increased the presence of many religious movements around the country and the migrations of many Indians to English-speaking nations. In the following years, many universities, especially in the United States, added Indian culture to their curriculum. So clearly, India was starting to be very, very interesting, even in the West. One day in 1967, Patsy Boyd, George Harrison's wife, discovered an advert on a newspaper about a meditation technique seminar in Bangor, Wales. The Beatles were already using Indian sounds and were absolutely fascinated by Indian culture, especially John Lennon and George Harrison. After that seminar, they decided to fly to India and learn transcendental meditation in an ashram in Rishikesh. But they didn't meditate only. After years of touring and being chased by fans, they had finally found some peace and that inspired many, many songs, apparently nearly 50. And most of them would end up in the Beatles' White Album. 
Some other songs weren't featured there, but will reappear in the future. Have you ever heard of a song called Child of Nature? It was written and recorded right after coming back from India, but not included in the studio sessions, and it will reappear in John Lennon's solo album, Imagine. I'm sure you've heard of it, but only in its final form. Child of Nature in three years will become Jealous Guy, one of Lennon's most famous songs after Imagine. My last story for today is a bit mysterious, very appropriate for this Halloween vibe. Probably the first in the club of 27, Robert Johnson lived his short but eventful life at the beginning of the 20th century. He was born in 1911 in Mississippi. When he was still a teenager, he used to play the diddly-bow a stringed instrument of African origin consisting of just one string made of baling wire stretched between two nails on a board and a glass bottle or a tin used as a bridge. It was used a lot in blues and it's kind of an entry-level guitar in a way. Robert Johnson wasn't a very skilled guitarist but he was very very ambitious and dedicated to becoming the best blues musician in the world. Actually, many people that have seen him play remember him being an embarrassingly bad guitarist until something happens. Apparently, after years of playing quite awfully, Johnson disappears and when he comes back, he is the greatest guitarist ever. Now, he probably simply took lessons and became very good, but many believe in something a bit more supernatural. So this is the story. One night, he walked to a crossroad with his guitar at midnight. There, a large black man, probably the devil or African god Legba, took his guitar and tuned it, played a couple of songs and gave the guitar back to Johnson. Once he started playing the instrument again, he was a master. He died mysteriously in 1938, right before playing the prestigious New York venue Carnegie Hall. Well, I hope you weren't too spooked out by this story. Thank you for listening to this episode and happy Halloween. I hope you have a very funny and scary one. Why not? Don't forget to follow me on social media. You can find me on Instagram at the Cat's Whisker Podcast and on TikTok at the Cat's Whisker. I publish a lot of extra content there, so make sure you check it out. And I'll see you next week. Ciao!